Welcome to Cursed Objects, a podcast about cultural history, politics and tat. With me, Dr. Kasha T. And me, Dan Hancocks. Where every week one of us brings in an object that perfectly unsettles our sense of self uh, and our sense of the world and we try to work out why. Kind of a little bit like a cursed show and tell. And this episode is a very special one. We're very excited, Kasha and I, because for the first time we've got somebody else coming in to do the cursed show and tell. Uh, Our first ever guest bringing in their own cursed object. And this week you are in for a treat because we have the wonderful Alice Proctor, that's Proctor with an E, um, joining us as a special guest. Alice is a phenomenal um, thinker and scholar of museums. Um, Her latest book, The Whole Picture, is really one of the kind of at the forefronts of discussing, uh, I guess, colonial art in museums. Um, And it's a very, very good read. I urge you all to go out and buy it. She is also a podcaster and she works on the Historical Friction podcast, which again is, I can't recommend uh, more highly, uh, a fantastic podcast on popular culture and history. And uh, yeah, and she's just a general uh, amazing good time girl who's agreed to come on Cursed Objects because I think, Alice, I hope you won't mind me saying this, I think you've actually got a more extensive collection of Cursed Objects than either Dan or I put together. You really are like the Cursed <laughs> Objects OG. So I, I do really love like finding the most weird shit that I possibly can, especially around museums and stuff so yeah you've been <laughs> you've you. been finding weird shit in museums and charity shops for as long as I've known you which has been a couple of years but like that like <laughs> this is like this is the kind of cultural interest of yours that I think maybe predates like literally the year zero like you are yeah, you are the patient much. zero of cursed objects I feel <laughs> <laughs> I really love I just I cannot like I can't justify how much I love really weird kind of kitschy stuff, especially if it's got some connection to like history and museums and art, especially I love going and finding like the weirdest possible thing I can in a museum gift shop, which is why I've brought you a really pretty haunted object today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) So I am slightly cheating and I'm bringing you something that I don't actually own, but as an apology, I've got a whole list of horrible, horrible things that we can discuss. Oh, perfect. <laughs> um, so to start with, uh, the object that I'm kind of presenting to you is something called an ear razor. And it's a little um, rubber shaped like an ear, like a rubbing, like a eraser. But it's, it's shaped like an ear and it's marketed as being Van Gogh's uh, chopped off ear. And oh so no, like, Christ! So Christ it's so tasteless, <laughs> this is this is fucked, right? Oh like, God. there's a lot going on here. Oh God, yeah. um, it's something I actually found on Instagram through one of those sort of weird museum meme accounts that I follow because of who I am as a person, <laughs> and I just thought it was a fun way of getting into the subject of museum gift shops and kind of art tat Mm. that goes along with all of this stuff. I've been, yeah, collecting cursed objects for a while. And I guess my sort of niche focus is always on things that are like colonial kitsch, Mm. um, things to do with colonial history, because that's mostly what I work on, presented in the tackiest way that you can possibly imagine. Before that, yeah, like, honestly, uh, it's like an interest that I definitely share. But like, I just wanted to like, just ask you about this just before we get onto the idea of colonial tat, which I'm sure you have 
endless examples of, <laughs> especially because of the country that we live in. Um, mm -hmm. But I was just kind of, uh, I'm kind of intrigued by this Van Gogh ear to begin with because it is so tasteless and so tacky for so yeah. many reasons, right? Like no less the fact that like Van Gogh had, uh, or like is said to have had quite a lot of like mental health issues when he like, yeah. when this happened, when he cut off his ear and there's kind of like a, quite an intense and tragic story around the idea that he cut off his ear. Um, but I mm. think that museums, it kind of just reminded me like museums are these kind of places that often try to marketize a, a kind of a narrativized life. So they narrativize someone's life Completely. and then they try to marketize one aspect of it. And I kind of, I don't want to try and out curse you here, <laughs> but <laughs> 100% as soon as you start discussing this, I just immediately thought of, if you go to um, the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam, oh boy, they sell like books, like red, red diaries, like write your own Anne Frank diary, which I just think is so, yeah. it's so um, horrendous for so many reasons, right? And I understand what they're yeah. trying to do there. They're trying to go, oh, you know, Anne Frank, this is her life. And you too could write a diary and you, could, you too could write a diary. But there's so much mm. more subtext there, isn't there? And then like, you can also buy like models of her house. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's odd, really odd. That's... Like, the models of the house is one thing. I think the way that Anne Frank's life has been turned into basically just, like, one extended writing prompt for high schoolers mm. is, like, a particular kind of curse. Yeah. And so the diaries as part of that is so fascinating and so creepy. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Like, so much of the way that museums function, and I think art galleries in particular, is to say, here's the artist, let's tell you a story about them. And then interpret everything through the lens of their biography right mm. so the artist is dead and we can experience things outside of the specific biography of an artist but the way that galleries really focus on the idea of like the solitary genius is something that really persists and so when it comes to the marketing and the the stuff you get in the gift shop it's often very much like tied to the biography of the subject mm. in a way that I don't love, <laughs> um, it's a bit complicated and, you know, I don't, I don't love the idea that the way Van Gogh's story is told is entirely through his health. Mm. Like he is someone who at various points in his life, uh, stayed in essentially asylums, um, received like significant amounts of care for what we would now describe as mental illness, um, used often some quite experimental drugs to try and treat that and like this is something that is a kind of profound trauma mm. <laughs> at the core of his life that that he lived with quite severe depression and mental illness and it affects his art absolutely but then that's also kind of become like memeified it's sort of like oh van gogh he was the crazy one right and he painted all these like weird swirly pictures because he was really fucked on antidepressants <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, but also, and like, especially the thing about the ear. So the story of Van Gogh cutting off his ear has become this kind of like, ooh, he was crazy and he was obsessed with a woman. And so he mailed her his ear. And it's like, well, he was also like profoundly suicidal and unwell. <laughs> like, this isn't funny. This yeah. is not funny at all. This is like actually like quite unhinged and not in a kind of funny, cutesy way mm. behavior. It's just so interesting that that behavior then gets marketized in museum gift shops because of his artwork. Yeah, like you say, like, so odd. Like, have you seen, I feel like this is a classic one, like they're hand puppets of famous artists or whatever, like a finger puppet of a famous artist or whatever. And they're always these kind of like slightly muppety, cartoony kind of representations of Monet or Van Gogh or Dali or whoever. And the Van Gogh ones almost always have a detachable ear. <laughs> <laughs> completely <laughs> it's like pin the ear on the artist yeah. like it's it's like <laughs> I really really wasn't expecting you to say that but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's fetishizing this notion of the mad artist this sort of crazy starving artist trope and then taking it to this really tasteless degree but I think even without objects like the what is it called again the ear razor even without like the eraser, the pencil sharpener, these sort of go-to 
gifts that you know what's the cheapest thing that you can buy as a seven-year-old on a school trip and pester your parents for the way that that gets transmuted from this incredible suffering that is so central to van gogh's life right like it's obviously valid to talk about how van gogh's mental ill health which as you say was extensive and throughout his life relates to his work Mm. because it both influences his work and is documented extensively within the work it's reflected in it. But this is just a, such a remove from that, isn't it? And I think Van Gogh is particularly prone to this kind of exploitation because you have this particular life story um, and that biography, which, as you say, can be turned into merch so easily. I also wanted to, I wanted to ask, you know, given all that, which of the other artists that you think are most prone to tat, to the production of tat? Frida Kahlo. <laughs> Frida Kahlo, like without a second, <laughs> Frida fucking Kahlo. I have a bauble, like uh, actually I do have this. This is possibly the object I should have presented to you since it's something that I own. It's like a green glittery bauble with a picture of Frida Kahlo on it that someone gave me as a joke present years ago because they know that I love this stuff. Um, but the way that her like aesthetic has been capitalized and commercialized is so like deeply and profoundly grotesque Mm. yeah there's sheer range of objects you can buy with her face on of her as a person represented like you don't you don't get van gogh's face on these karist objects quite so much compared with say like sunflowers or or one of his paintings but no she is the icon that's central to it like her as a human being right and like i think it's interesting you don't get as many things of van gogh but i think it's interesting that like so much of him is represented in this way. And like Frida Kahlo, he's an artist that makes a lot of self-portraits. And I wonder if there's some kind of like weird cognitive dissonance that's like, well, if if it's an artist that painted themselves a lot, then that must mean that their image is fair game. Cause like, you don't really see this happening in the same way with other, with artists that don't have such a sort of strongly defined self-image and self-representation mm. in their own lifetimes. Like I would say someone like Dali comes close. Mm. Warhol. Probably maybe? because he's so widely photographed. Mm. Warhol, exactly. Because again, he's like making endless self-portraits. And yeah, it's interesting that with both Carlo and Van Gogh, they're artists that paint themselves a lot of the time. And so I think that like becomes a justification. Mm. But yeah, Frida Kahlo, without a doubt, like her face, um, the sort of flower crowns, the the fabrics and stuff like that. I don't know if you remember the VNA exhibition yeah. of her like wardrobe a couple of years ago. And there was a bit of a backlash because they were selling like 200 pound flower crowns in the gift shop. Yeah, that was one of the, that was definitely one of the most expensive. Cause I also, I love, I love a gift shop, you know, right, I love tap. Completely. And, and like, you know, I was really looking forward to like going in there and just kind of seeing what they might have. And it was all, really expensive which is something that you kind of expect from the vna as this like you know kind of like super elitist kind of expensive yep. and like the exhibition itself was so expensive mm-hmm. um i did think that it was it was like an interesting story behind the exhibition because it was like the collection was from like a room that hadn't been opened and actually someone who had opened it was a cur- the person who did end up opening it was a curator I yeah think. Like, it was like a museum curator who ended up opening this room for the purpose of opening an exhibition, which kind of, like, I don't know, I think there's a lot to unpack there about how, like, we end up displaying people's lives, you know, like, Mm. their possessions. And, I mean, also, like, with that exhibition, it was so specifically focused on how she kind of curated her life. It wasn't about her as a painter. It was about her clothes and her jewellery and her makeup and the way that she would, like, paint her body casts and things like that. Mm. And so that is quite a different experience, I think, to sort of more like straight art gallery kind of vibe. But yeah, it's still, it's still this very commercialized way of viewing someone. And especially when that doesn't align with their personal politics, I think that's something that you have to consider. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And on that note, I went to the Van Gogh in London exhibition in the Tate Britain in 2019. Oh, yeah. I was sent to by a foreign newspaper to write about it. It wasn't an exhibition I was especially excited about seeing, but I thought I'll check it out as I'm being paid. And it felt really craven to me. I'd, I'd love to know what you two as sort of experts in the museum sector would think. 
but it seemed to me like the equivalent of a of an exhibition I remember seeing at the Victoria and Albert Museum, in, which was the 1960s, the rock and roll revolutionary decade, um, you know, swinging 60s with a bit of politics, like shots of Woodstock Festival you've seen a million times before, the King's Road, swinging 60s, etc. And it just felt so tediously like rep, rep, repetitive of a kind of canon. And as a layperson, I remember thinking, like, you, the, the V&A, you just need a banker, don't you? You need an exhibition that will get everyone coming through the doors. Um, this isn't a remotely interesting or creative curatorial decision or any indication what the gallery or the space should be doing. You're just, you know, you're trying to get numbers through the turnstiles for the sake of the bank balance, sell loads of merch, and the tourists will pack in. And uh, similarly, I felt the Van Gogh exhibition at the Tate Britain there were like it was just rammed yep. there were timed tickets for it which was pre-covid and quite rare at that point because it was so popular um so super popular but it was just a really tenuous excuse to get <laughs> to get the numbers in like it was the the exhibition was billed as Van Gogh in London uh, and that was just a really weak narrative when you went around the exhibition really tenuous because Van Gogh had spent a bit of time in London in his younger life and like sure that had some influence on what he subsequently did with his work as as it would on anybody but it was pretty pretty tenuous and it wasn't really the cornerstone of his artistic inspiration which was as far as I understand it you know mostly from France and the Netherlands and when you got to the room in the Tate which had his painting of the sunflowers in it was in the middle of the room, almost on like a pedestal, like it was sort of the king of the court. And then around the edge of the room, you had paintings by less well-known British artists that were supposedly trying to achieve the same mm -hmm. thing, inspired by Van Gogh's sunflowers. So basically, it was a room full of pretty mediocre and uninteresting still-life paintings around the edges. Whereas in, in the middle, then you have sunflowers almost memified on a pedestal where you could sort of most easily take a photo to put on your Insta... Um, and almost as a reminder to pick up some of his merch, some merch with sunflowers on from the gift shop. It just, I found super, found it super cynical and quite yeah. depressing. Mm. Um, Tate Britain is a classic for this one. They actually have form when it comes to let's do something about an artist who's everyone who like everyone knows the name of, and then somehow tangentially tie it to British art. <laughs> so they did this, I think in like 2015 or 2016 with Picasso as well, who's someone mm. who did not really spend any, like, I don't know if he even spent any time in, England but certainly not like significant or transformative time in England and it once was about, wrote like, a letter something like that right once wrote a letter to someone in England and right, that was it like, like okay. he had some English friends yeah <laughs> he once and met so, an Englishman in Spain <laughs> and that's enough <laughs> right and so this show is about an artist whose work is so like absolutely unsubtly Spanish um mm. They, they construct this exhibition about like Picasso and British art where they have like five Picasso paintings that they've managed to get hold of. And each room is about the British artists that were influenced by him. And it's like, well, this is actually an exhibition about like British modernism, mm. isn't it? This mm. is about mm. like British painting from the 1930s through to the 1960s-ish. And like, that's interesting. That's an exhibition in itself. But you've given it this hook of mm. like someone's biography. And I would say actually Picasso is another example of someone who's like life has become merchandised mm. and that's because he did that to himself like towards his later years he was you know paying for lunch with a signature and shit like that and started mass producing stuff in order to churn it out and like continue to build this enormous reputation and you know that's kind of partially his fault like that's not something that's entirely been done posthumously the way that it has with Van Gogh and Frida Kahlo but yeah, that like classic Tate Britain move to be like, let's pick a European that people really like and somehow make this mm. a British exhibition. And it's it's yeah. just it's just really stupid to be quite honest. I hate it. <laughs> I think I, it's really lazy. Yeah. Agreed. It's quite shameless, isn't it, really? I so I've forgotten the name of this particular Van Gogh painting, but it's um Quite, it's a very famous one of the Rhone uh, River with like these beautiful sort of twinkling lights above the Blue River. And the caption in the Van Gogh uh, Tate exhibition was like, 
Van Gogh sometimes liked to take walks by the Thames. Oh and God. maybe this inspired him years later when yeah. he was walking by a completely different river in a different point <laughs> of his life to paint a different painting of that different place. Um, just, yeah, really tenuous, basically. I was just going to say that, yeah, this kind of like ties into... I guess it's something that in the museum sector is definitely seen as a bit of a Faustian bargain. It's kind of like, how do we get people through the doors, but also how do we make lots of money from them? So like, mm -hmm. it's kind of like a Faustian bargain. And I think lots of people that work in museums also kind of acknowledge this, where often they create exhibitions. They, they were called blockbuster exhibitions for quite a long time. You know, these like huge exhibitions. The V&A had like a really long run of like different ones on like Pink Floyd and David Bowie where they invest a lot in like scene setting. They often are traveling exhibitions mm. in order to get like people through the door. Um, and, you know, I went to a couple of them. I don't, I can't remember if I paid. I think I was working in museums at the time. So I think I just kind of snuck in. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think they were kind of like part of that like narrative within museums or like kind of like an idea of how to get people into museums. So it was like very much go bigger, go most popular, try to get as many people through the doors as possible, cram them in at certain times, make it seem really exclusive, like bring up loads of hype around it and uh, make the ticket prices like 25 quid. And that's what they did. And I think in certain instances they made, they made shit loads of money. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that was, yeah. Part of this presumably is like, like, I don't know exactly how bad the state of museum and gallery funding is now in this country and how desperate even the big players like the Tate or the VNA are. But, I, but yeah, let's, it's, it's clearly really bad and was bad even before coronavirus, you know, had this just huge, huge impact. The other question I wanted to ask the two of you as sort of museum experts, though, is what... Sort of what's the relationship between the gift shop and the rest of the collection? Like, am I right in thinking that there's a kind of uh, understood to be almost a sort of supposed like division between the free access public art um, in the in the actual gallery space that is a public space? And this is like the locus of our culture and our history. And then on the other hand, you have the commodified bit, the gift shop, the money making bit, which is tacked on at the end as if these are just two completely separate and distinct worlds. Like, the gift shop is the bit where the tacky but necessary commercial stuff happens. Um, and it's sort of as if there's there's this divide between sort of on the one hand, you know, here be beauty and there be spreadsheets. Yeah. But is that division, in fact, completely false in the sense that, like, so many of these objects in, in, in the display cases or paintings were, were and are commodities themselves? Um, and that's exactly how they ended up in our public collections in the first place. Um, and they often are still changing hands for crazy amounts of money. Yeah, like it is and it isn't. Because often these museums have their own sort of enterprises and they're always called enterprises or whatever branch, which usually does like the cafe and the gift shop and the money making side of things. And so often they are really their own thing and they've got their own buyers, they've got their own staff, they're very separate. They might not even like be on the same site. I know museums where they're not even in the same building as like curatorial and creative side of things. Having said that, when an exhibition is being put together, there will be a kind of consult of like, here's what's in the show, here's what you should get for the gift shop sort of thing. So they're not like completely divorced but they do exist kind of separately, if that makes sense. You know, the people doing the buying for the gift shops are often not involved in the exhibition decision-making process and vice versa. And so, yeah, you often get this like real disconnect between what's happening in the gallery and what's happening in the shop, which is something I'm obsessed with personally. Mm. Yeah, I... Can I just say, I think it's like so interesting the way that like from the outside, we think that museums are this like singular monolith. And it's only when you're kind of inside, you realize how atomized a lot of the departments are. Like when I was in the Imperial War Museum, like doing my PhD research, you talk to curators who are just thinking so progressively about different types of history. And then you go downstairs and you go for a wee and you close the door and on the back of the door, there's a picture of Churchill and it says, join Churchill's army, become a friend of the museum. And you're like, how are these two worlds coexisting? It's so odd. And then you go into the gift shop and there's like, I don't know, like Santa, like a Santa Claus jumper of him in a, in a Spitfire plane. And you're like, Where? how is this? 
just all happening like under one roof. It's so odd. Yeah, no, it's so disconnected. And so that's like often a problem that museums face where they've got these, you know, interesting ideas, interesting exhibitions, trying to do something cool. And then they've got these truly like god awful gift shops. And one of the examples that stands out most to me, and Kazia, I know I've told you about this before. I think I told your students about this <laughs> years ago. Um, there was this exhibition at the Royal Academy called Oceania that was not without its flaws, but like the whole point of this show was supposed to be like, let's look at objects from the Pacific, let's talk about how you know, they've been used by their communities and now they're being interpreted by museums and like it had a lot of problems and I do not defend it. I was very critical of it at the time because of how it dealt with colonial history. But then you go into the gift shop and after they've put all this emphasis into being like really well-researched and really academic, there were toy soldiers of Maori people in the gift shop, like toy warriors, like cowboys and Indian style toy soldiers. And that's really grotesque mm. um especially considering one of the things that the exhibition did not really touch on in a lot of detail there was a significant trade in human remains from the pacific to europe particularly of maori remains um and so this is like just who made this choice like who thought this was a good idea did anyone in the buying department actually see the exhibition did anyone on the exhibition side of things bother to look at the gift shop like have they talked to each other at all do they even know each other's names <laughs> like mm. what happened to allow this kind of disconnect and yeah it, it happens all the time when you see this real like separation between the objects that are kind of interesting and considered within an exhibition context and then the ones that end up being you know on the postcards at the end or like mm. who's on the poster what are we talking about when we're advertising the museum or the show or whatever I'm really glad that you brought this up because I know that you're someone who has uh, written about Maori remains in museums and first thing I thought of when I saw this uh, ear razor this Van Gogh ear was why are museums so obsessed with having bodies in their collection, oh both in God. gift shops and also like, you know, within their collections? It was just like, I just read it on so many levels, you know, when there are so many campaigns to like get remains, like human remains repatriated and museums still endlessly seem to be obsessed with bodies. Yeah. Commodifying bodies. Can I just ask, like, which uh, where which of the museums that have human remains? Because I've seen the shrunken heads at the Pitt Rivers Museum, uh, but I think that they've they've since been removed. But how many others have human remains, and which ones are we talking about here? I mean, honestly, like most of them, um, any science museum or natural history museum's got human remains in it. Most anthropology museums do as well. Uh, most local museums, actually, I'd say the majority of museums in the country have human remains because they've almost all got mummies. And that's what people forget to, like, consider because when we think about human remains, we're often like, oh, why would they possibly have, like, body parts on display? But actually, like, the overwhelming majority of sort of local authority or city museums in the UK are Victorian institutions and therefore they pop up at, like, the absolute peak of... Egyptomania and the obsession with collecting mummies and displaying ancient Egyptian archaeology. And so most museums have a mummy or two either on show or in the basement. And also plenty of them will have local archaeology as well. So there might be one or two Roman skeletons hanging around kind of thing. Um, but yeah, more museums than you realise will have human remains in them. They might not be on display. There might not be any information about how they even got there. <laughs> but most of them have got a mummy. Yeah, I think sometimes they just get, they're like also included in collections. I know the Imperial War Museum had a collection of, of human remains in, in its like, it, it had some uh, in its collections recently. And I think most people, most of the curators were like, how, how did this happen? <laughs> I think they didn't even know how that had really happened. And so they had to like have a burial of the remains, you know, like a respectful burial of the remains because they were like, whoa. And I think it's like, there's a lot of complications around like accessioning objects. So like once a collection, so someone says, I'm going to donate this collection and then the museum accepts the collection. Sometimes they know what's in it. Sometimes they like have a look through, but they accept the collection and then trying to get, trying to know what to do with parts of it, I think. I mean, I think this is, this though is an atypical case. I think usually museums have these human remains and don't seem to want to repatriate them and actually, I guess, do the right thing with them. 
yeah, a lot of the time it's just sort of taken for granted that there will be some remains in a museum, like whether it's skeletal remains or mummified remains. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty normal. And honestly, I think a lot of museums just don't even have the resources to think about it, especially when we're mm-hmm. talking about more local or regional museums like they're underfunded and understaffed Mm. and so like okay you've got the choice but you've got three people on your staff and you've got the choice between providing you know programs to school kids and retirees or putting a lot of effort and energy into finding out where these bones came from like what are you gonna do Mm, mm. 100% and I was just wondering Alice because obviously you do have such a a wealth of experience of museum gift shops how does this kind of (laughs) obsession I guess with well not obsession but how does this uh, kind of culture of exhibiting human remains how does that translate into the gift shop because presumably these remains exist in the museum and, and museums don't get rid of them because they think that's what the public want to see right yeah I mean like the sheer quantity of stuff that's like ancient Egyptian in museum gift shops, you can have the most tenuous connection to Egyptian collections. And I guarantee you there'll be a mummy in the gift shop. Like (laughs) there's always a sarcophagus pencil case. There's always like a Egyptian cat ornament or something like that. Like that is a massive seller. People love that shit. Um, The British museum is one of the worst offenders for this. Uh, They do little tin pencil cases that look like sarcophaguses. And they're painted to represent, you know, the different sarcophaguses in the museum collection. Like, that's mm. that's a thing that people mm. are really into. Um, nowadays, I think they mostly sell them empty or with pencils inside. I definitely, when I was a kid, you used to be able to get them with a white chocolate mummy on inside them. Wow. Um, I, I had one. <laughs> like, I remember this distinctly. <laughs> like, maybe... Yeah, 20 years ago, they sold them with chocolate mummies in them, but they don't anymore. Um, and that's like a whole other thing, right? So I guess I guess like one of the things is, is that there will be people listening to this and they'll kind of go, okay, so I don't really get what the problem is. Like, they yeah. don't really get what the problem is with, I guess, human remains of mummies being on display Maybe they might be slightly more sympathetic to like uh, Maori bodies, um, but I think there's such an obsession around Egyptian, uh, especially around mummies, that like maybe there's like a kind of blind spot there. And I wondered if you could maybe explain a little bit more, like how why you feel how you do about them. Yeah, so like this is a hundred percent a cultural blind spot, and it, that's something that was very deliberately constructed, like. From really the sort of 1700s onwards, when Europeans start traveling more extensively, and particularly Egypt, but North Africa and the Middle East as a whole, there's this real interest in Egyptology. And the way that it's been presented in pop culture since then is is this sort of like, ooh, spooky, mystical, how strange, you know? I had my bisexual awakening to Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. Like, how could there possibly (laughs) be anything bad about ancient Egyptian archaeology? Like, the way that it's in pop culture is this very kind of like bland and harmless and like taken Mm. for granted and that is a thing that starts like very deliberately in the 18th century to like justify the taking of objects from Egypt particularly by the British and French they're using archaeology like as a proxy war for control over Egypt like Napoleon's obsessed with Egypt and so the British are like shit we better get in on that (laughs) and so they start fighting for control of these archaeological sites Mm. as a way of exerting dominance and control over the region as a whole right and so the idea is that if you can collect the most stuff and put it in your museums on display you then get to sort of exert intellectual power as well as like military power over the region and Mm. so because of the sheer volume of stuff, it just mm. becomes incredibly normalized that these are on display, these are being experienced. Right from the start, ancient Egyptian archaeology is shown in this real, like, sideshow, fairground kind of way. There's a lot of emphasis on how the objects are lit. It's the first time that we see, and I'm talking about, like, the 18th and 19th century here, people like designing the rooms around the objects to look Mm. like their tombs or their pyramids or whatever. And they've got, you know, the lighting and the blue and gold and everything like that. And like exhibition design for ancient Egypt truly has not moved on from the 1840s. (laughs) It's still got all the same like tropes and things Mm. about like, oh, it's spooky. Oh, there are curses. Oh, it's mysterious. Oh, hieroglyphics. How cool and weird. And ooh. And like people dress up for these exhibitions and like it's very theatrical. It's very, very performative. And that whole kind of culture around it is replicated in media and in the press and like on stage, in novels. Everyone like goes 
fucking wild for ancient Egypt pretty much relentlessly (laughs) from like the 1720s onwards. It's the thing. And it stays that way for a really long time. And so, yeah, there's absolutely a blind spot when it comes to seeing mummies as human remains because that has been kind of like drummed in for the last 300 years. And the theatricalization, that's not a word, of ancient Egypt is Mm. part of how we then kind of become desensitized to like the fact that we're looking at human remains on display. Mm. And I feel very strongly that human remains don't belong in museums. I don't think they should be on show. That's something that I'm like personally pretty clear on. Not everyone has to agree with that, but I do think it's important to recognize the kind of particular numbing that goes on around mummies in ancient Egypt. Mm. Yeah, 100%. I think it's really interesting. I went to uh, the Tutankhamun exhibition a couple of years ago um, just because I was kind of interested in it because there was this huge exhibition in the kind of 70s on Tutankhamun at the British Museum. And then it's Mm. like, I think it's interesting to observe it anthropologically, you know. I think it's interesting to go to an exhibition like that and to see what narratives are on display. And I kind of walked around with my friend and I was like, and like, anyway, like my brother says to me at the moment, he's like, Kasha, you can't just point at things and say it's bad because of colonialism. And I was like, but I can do that with this exhibition. You can do that. You 100% can can do that. (laughs) And and we were walking around this exhibition. I kind of like was saying to my friend, like, oh, you know, like the reason why we're so obsessed with this stuff or why there's such a cultural obsession with this in in the UK is, is because of colonialism. And my friend was just like, what are you talking about? No, it's not. And I was like, no, it is. It really, really is. And it's, and you're so right. I think there's this whole, um, there's this whole, I guess it's what um, Laura Ann Stoller calls colonial aphasia around colonial history in general, where we can't necessarily recognize it to be colonial. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting, like our obsession with something like Egyptology. It's not seen for what it actually is, which is a reflection of like histories of colonialism. It's seen as just like, yeah, I just really fucking love pyramids or something, you know? It's like, and it's not that. Like, there's so much more depth to this story. Yeah, I'm just really into triangles. But like, so yeah. much. <laughs> this is marketed at kids as well like yeah. I was an Egyptology kid right like you I was I was a mythology kid eventually but I was I started out as as an Egyptology kid and then I got into like really 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 got into Greek and Roman stuff because I realized kind of how gross it was to be looking at mummies but I started out as an Egyptology kid and like the way that this is marketed towards children is a huge part of that well, I wonder if that's why people are so, um, or maybe are potentially quite defensive around it because they remember their childhood memories. Because, like, certainly, like, our parents' generation and their parents' generation, I mean, this goes back generations, right, would have grown up around around the idea of, like, Egyptology being exciting and fascinating and exciting. And I kind of wonder whether, you know, it's been ingrained into us. So, like, on Cursed Objects, we've spoken about, like, you know, Lego riot police toys for children and, like, or, like, Lego soldiers. But this is, like, a whole new different type of indoctrination into a particular way of looking at the world, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And that's something that goes back generations. It goes back like centuries, as I was saying, because so much of this, like from the beginning, makes it about like puzzles and codes and labyrinths and things like that. And that stuff is really appealing. Like it's Mm. really good fun. And, you know, who doesn't love the idea of writing a kind of visual language like hieroglyphs? Like, that's really cool, you know? Mm. And it makes total sense to market this towards kids. But that that does mean that there's this kind of like sentimental attachment to it that people are often not fully conscious of. It feels sort of inevitable and natural because it's been there all along and you've never like stopped to think about it. And, you know, I think the point about aphasia is so, so important because think about how many cities around Europe and the world more generally, have needles in them, like um, the Cleopatra's needle or whatever you want to call them, obelisks. Um, How many of them are all over the place? Like, they're part of just, like, the architecture of cities Mm. (laughs) in a way Mm. that that feels very sort of naturally occurring. And we don't think of that necessarily as sort of an Egyptian art form, but it Mm. is, and they Mm. come here through colonialism. Oh my God, just as you were saying that, I was just thinking even the, you know, like the Pharaoh's curse, like the curse of like, of right. the Egyptologists that like, or the archaeologists that went into the, um, that went into the pyramids, you know, even that, that is such a clear metaphor. I think maybe you'd call it a clear metaphor for the fact that like 
if you go into someone's country and nick all of their stuff, something bad should happen to you, right? It's obviously <laughs> like, it's obviously guilt that the Europeans right. have. But instead of actually being like, oh shit, you know what we should stop do? Plundering. They're like, let's say it's a curse and then mark it and sell more things around this. This is what happens when you feel guilty, but you're also like too racist to recognize it as guilt, right? Yeah. Because it's this, it's this feeling of sort of like remorse and like, oh, maybe this was a bad idea. Like maybe bad things are going to happen to me because I did whatever. And it's, it's like, yeah, that's, that's true. Maybe you should sit with that and think about it and not do it again, right? But instead the response is like, hmm, I don't like how I feel about this. Someone must have cursed me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to use this to sell things in the British Museum. Exactly. <laughs> I want to say there's actually a very specific sort of museum object that I find incredibly cursed, which is the um, historical figure rubber duck, which is a genre all of its own. <laughs> have you seen these? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, I have. I have. Where it's like, it's like a rubber duck dressed as, you know, I mean, Cleopatra or Anne Boleyn or Napoleon or... A general you know, in the First World War. A general in the First World War <laughs> or... A Roman or something. And like that as a genre is just such a specific and weird thing. Um, the National Museum of Australia sells a Captain Cook rubber duck to bring it back to colonialism. That's uh, that's fucked. Is there something that connects your Egyptology puzzle book where you have to, you know, unearth the secrets of the Pharaoh by doing a word search? Is the is the thing that connects that to the eraser? And all of these toys, really, rubber ducks included, the fact that gift shops are for kids, ultimately. And that that's a sort of huge part of... Like, it's not just about selling merch, but making it a more family-friendly experience generally and encouraging families to come. Um, But I'm assuming that's just a key part of the conversation that goes on. I mean, those rubber ducks, I mean... I guess maybe they're for grown-ups, but you'd have to be pretty eccentric to want to have a bath with a Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. The world is a rich tapestry, and I am sure there is someone out there who does that. However, I think it's weird, and this is something. That, like, yeah, no, you're completely right. It's 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 for kids, but that's also something that happens like through exhibitions as well, where you get like family trails or kids trails or whatever. And they'll often have a mascot that's something connected to the museum in some way. And it'll be like an animal or something that's in the collection, or it'll be like, Ooh, we're doing, we're doing the ancient Egypt exhibition. So like the mascot that sort of takes you through the tour is like a mummy or something. Mm. And, and yeah, it's a way of sort of slightly desensitizing us to the material that's being shown. It's a way of, simplifying the stories that are being put on put on show and that's something that's done in art spaces as well it's done with people like van gogh it's like oh yeah look it's for kids let's do like a kid's book about this artist i have a kid's picture book about eve klein which my dad gave me as a joke (laughs) but it's all about how like he really loved blue and and all of the colors and stuff that he was really into and it doesn't really get into the fact that like he was also kind of a creep and probably not a great person (laughs) but it's a kid's book and it's very cute and that's like such a genre as well you know and like I don't want to get into the sort of kids books of historical figures and stuff but within the museum space like yeah the whole point of this is to try and make the stuff on shows sort of more accessible and more like tactile and stuff like that. And the idea of an ear razor as a bit of a gag gift, like, yeah, it's for kids, but it's also for adults to feel a bit like, well, I made it through that stuffy exhibition. So I deserve a little treat for me. (laughs) And, you know, it's a funny little gimmicky, whatever. And it is just tat at the end of the day. Like it's Mm. just, just vast, vast quantities of stuff. Um, And that is inevitable. Like, not to be all we live under capitalism, but we do live under capitalism and museums have to make money. (laughs) And that's the problem is that they have to make money somehow. Mm. And then sure as shit, not getting it from the government. And like Mm. blockbuster exhibitions only go so far. It's exhausting to go around all those shows and try and like get something out of them a lot of the time. And so, yeah, you've got to have a little gift shop at the end for a little treat. And sometimes that little treat is a Captain Cook rubber duck. And sometimes it's a 200 pound flower crown <laughs> and sometimes it's, it's a mummy <laughs> pencil case, mm. but like all of these things are almost like bribes for getting through the history of it, like for kids. Yeah. But also for adults. 
it comes back I think to this like Faustian bargain thing where like mm. museums want to like put on shows that attract people and often they kind of go light on the critical narratives they go light on the you know talking about colonialism because they're like oh, if we do this, people won't come. They'll maybe be put off. They'll think it's too serious or intellectual or violent for children, which is kind of, you know, ironic, really, that they're kind of like, oh, we want to enjoy this, but we don't want to talk about the huge subtext here, which is that, like, colonialism was violent and brutal to many, many people, you know, yeah. and, like, decimated, you know, entire populations. And I think, yeah, it's, like, interesting that because of that kind of Faustian bargain of getting people through the door, it's the same with the gift shops. It's like, well, they made it through. Maybe they learned one or two things. So we'll just, you know, we're kind of like put these things here and it'll be okay. I don't yeah. know. No, I think I think you're completely right. And and yeah, it's it's down to the fact that these museums are often really concerned with getting people through the door and making it seem sort of like a painless experience to engage with history. And that's honestly just really depressing there are much more interesting ways to do that. <laughs> I feel like gift shops, you know, they have a function, which is to make money, but they're also really lazy a lot of the time. Like some of those other approaches to making a museum or a gallery a more accessible place and a more enjoyable place, like moving curatorial principles on from just being sort of, you know, museums being dusty places with things in glass cases and nothing more. Um, you know, I'm, gu I'm guessing both of you would agree that producing like a series of, you know, family friendly workshops or a kid's trail with tasks you can do along the way, if they're done well, that's exactly what was probably missing from the vast majority of museums for the vast majority of their history. Um, though apparently that doesn't apply to gift shops themselves, I understand, because they go back to the Victorian period. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm... <sighs> Some of my best friends are museum workers. Um, and as someone who like <laughs> used to do kids education, like I understand how hard it can be to get, get people interested. But like I used to work with school groups. There are ways of doing it, even in the most boring place when people are on a school trip and they don't want to be there. Like you can make it fun, you can make it interesting. The problem is that there is no money for that. Like mm. educators take training they need to be paid or you end up with volunteers who are often retirees who aren't interested in learning a new script and are going to continue to do the tour that they've been doing for the last 35 years, even if it is out of date. And I have dealt with these people <laughs> many, many times. And like, as, as someone who used to work in education in museum spaces and like heritage spaces, I have been a volunteer guide and I have had to try and like teach and train guides that don't want to learn and don't want to like change their style and it's really hard when you're relying on volunteers for that but there's no money <laughs> to hire people or train people or whatever and so often the cheapest thing to do is to get one member of staff to write a trail and just have like a little illustrated pamphlet or whatever that the kids use because it's cost effective and like it's pretty straightforward um, like these things take a lot of work to make, but once you've made them, you can just use it forever. And so it comes back to the fact that like these museums don't have any money to do anything different or better. And there's not a lack of change because people aren't interested in making a difference. It's because they like actually cannot, mm. which sucks mm. so much. Making history engaging is so incredibly challenging and it requires so much out of the box thinking but also like really up-to-date scholarship especially like if you are say for example like a white person who's curating like colonial histories of other people who aren't white and you know it takes so much time to actually consult and consider and actually do something successfully and it's it's such a shame that those that resources aren't going into that yeah and like that's time well spent you know if you put yeah. in a lot yeah. of work and effort to do that and also perhaps they should not be the ones curating those exhibitions. <laughs> Just a thought. But, yeah. like, but like that means that then you have to train another curator, right? And then you have mm. to train more staff and then you have to train more interpretation people. And actually it's easier to just keep relying on the volunteers that you've had for the last 40 years because they show up every week and that's fine and they're always on time and all they want is a cup of tea at the Christmas party and you're good. Mm. And like mm. the effort and work that goes into making histories interesting, making them engaging, making them accessible making sure they're accurate is mm. something that, yeah, these institutions don't have the money for. And it comes back to the same problem of like 
well, why do you have a mummy in your basement? It's like, because it takes too much time and effort to do any research. <laughs> and like, we can't afford a lawyer for the deaccessioning. So mm. it's just going to stay there. Mm. And that's bad. Like, I think mm. it's fair to say that's bad. <laughs> Can I just ask, because I think you're so embedded in that world, with accessioning and deaccessioning, I mean, I think I, I get the gist from context clues, but what exactly is going on there? And how formal is it? It depends on the museum. Like, often you do have collections where it's literally as much as, like, show up on the door and promise not to ask for your stuff back. But that's pretty uncommon now mostly it's like a very complicated paperwork process of saying these are my things i am giving them to the museum if it's a good museum they'll do provenance research which means they'll find out the complete history of the object from its creation and try and make sure it's not stolen or illegally acquired obviously because we're in the uk that is often a question that involves some fudging (laughs) um, and euphemism particularly around colonial history and usually you go as far back as you can until you find a person with a British military title and then you stop asking questions um so provenance research is really sketchy and it depends on who's doing it and how they've got time for it and then that will enable you to decide if an object can be accessioned into the collection or not it's also got to be like physically safe for people to handle you've got to know it's not going to explode or give anyone radiation poisoning and that sort of thing and you know that's often like a really important part of the process of like scientific hazards of these objects as well And then deaccessioning is the same thing in reverse. So it's the process that you go through when an object leaves a collection and you accept that it's no longer fit for display. It might be damaged. It might have a claim on it for restitution or repatriation. Or it might just be like old and broken. Or, you know, you might find out it's a fake or something. Or you might find out that it is actually explosive after all. And then you have to deaccession it. (laughs) Honestly, I swear, I swear there's like an entire, I don't know where they get trained to do this, but like field of journalists that like maybe go through like museum bins and then they're like, oh, this museum threw away this. It's like every, every so often there's like a big, I don't know, like something in the Daily Mail or whatever that's like, can you believe the V&A is getting rid of this thing that's in a skiff or whatever? And it's like, <laughs> where do you, like, it's like people believe that museums are just like, dustbins for like stuff and often like I think it's really hard because well-intentioned people are like oh maybe a museum might might want this but like there is such a limit to space particularly in London even when like collections are moving outside it's like there is a limit to how much you can collect and also the information that you can collect on those things is often defined by like the time that it was collected so like if it was collected in like the 50s often you'll look at it and there'll be like one word or two words that describe what it is. And like more recently, there's like much fuller uh, descriptions and histories of the objects and, and how they were acquired or their histories. Whereas if they're accessioned in the 1950s, often it will just say, this is a gun. And often it'll like literally be written on the object as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they won't even like have a label or whatever. They'll just be like, this is from this place and they'll just like write it on the object so like there's a huge spectrum of of research that goes into these things yeah I can tell you now if you're thinking about leaving something to a museum odds are they don't actually want it um think it through (laughs) give them money instead well well you say that and that's fair comment I'm sure but my dad recently took the um computer we had when I was 12 an Atari ST 1040 uh to a computer museum Norton Keynes that sounds like that sounds like a euphemism. Like, oh yeah, my cat ran away when actually it died. Oh my, my computer went to the computer museum in Milton Keynes. Um, I mean, yeah, the the Atari ST should have gone to the computer museum in the sky a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> suffice it to say that I never beat the final boss on Bubble Bubble, so I'm sad about it for that reason. <laughs> Can I ask, you were talking about white curators attempting to sort of adequately cover the histories behind objects that were plundered by the British during the empire. And I know this is a huge question in itself. Um, We've already been going for a while, but I'd love to know how well is the process of decolonising the average museum in Britain going at this point? Are they like 1% of the way along? Dear listeners, I wish you could see Alice's face right now. (laughs) Um, Like this is, the short answer is no. 
The long answer is that some institutions are doing a really interesting job working with source communities to try and understand how objects came into their collections in the first place. Some of them are doing a really good job trying to research the provenance of objects for repatriation and restitution. Some of them are doing a okay-ish job talking to people who like have different forms of expertise on these objects right and that's a lot of what it comes down to is sort of like decentralizing power from the white western curator and recognizing that the expertise that an art historian or a conservator has is very different to the experience that a member of the community that created an object has and that's like important and valuable um it really depends on where you are and who you're asking like i think the idea of a museum being decolonized is kind of a bit of a myth. Um, museums can engage with decolonial work and they can begin to like implement some of the sort of strategies and actions of anti-imperialism. However, overwhelmingly, these spaces are not able to be like capital D decolonized because they are so like inherently colonial mm. and Instead, what we have is this sort of middle ground where museums like start to acknowledge that they are colonial institutions and start to like engage with that in the work that they do and become almost more self-conscious in a way of that and start to like recognize that that is something that they will never be able to get away from. Mm. And so engage with it and acknowledge it and make it transparent rather than just sort of shrugging and being like we don't talk about the 18th century which is kind of the default at the moment or like the euphemisms that were usually usually used like oh we'll just call it like I don't know we'll just call it like finding new land and it's like now they're starting to like yeah. not do that so much which is great I think like a really good example Dan is uh, the Horniman down by you um, it works really really some of its work with source communities is really impressive so like you know I'll go and talk to them about like so it'll go and talk to the communities where objects came from there seems to be like certainly in their newer displays like more of a kind of dialogue but then that dialogue really stops when they talk about things like the Benin bronzes you know like when a when when it comes to the valuable objects or like you know valuable in air commas here like museums often kind of go oh yeah we kind of spoke to them but that was it <laughs> and they don't really kind of because they know that that's that they're their collections that are like priceless and they don't re they don't really want to give them away and they know that if they do open that dialogue properly then that then they should you know they can't just bury their head in the sand yeah or they do the classic and they're like we're doing more research yeah we can't comment yet <laughs> which is which is like often it's true but unfortunately that research is often incredibly um obscured and it becomes a thing where you can just say for years, if not decades, like, we're thinking about it, we're doing some research, we're just we're just really contemplating the idea of repatriation. Like, we just need to do a bit more thinking. And like, that's incredibly frustrating. But yeah, the euphemisms that, that museums use about like, you know, discussion mm. rather than like actual like consideration or acquisition of objects the classic is always like talking about an age of enlightenment and mm. discovery and things like that and and ultimately like that is so entrenched in the museum mm. that it would require a real radical transformation <laughs> to, yeah. to have like a truly non-colonial institution and I kind of don't know that that'll ever happen. Can I also just say sorry I think it also like Big P politics plays a big part here because I don't Completely. think I don't think the Horniman could really give away its I mean maybe it could, but like especially around the Ben and Bronzes, you know, you kind of see um France's president Macron kind of saying, right, we're gonna give we're gonna give these Ben and Bronzes back. Our government is certainly not open to such dialogue <laughs> and discussion. Yeah. So I think even it's it's just so frustrating because so many like great tracks and so much work is trying to be made, you know, outside by people like Alice, but also inside museums by curators on like trying to get stuff happening. And often it's just met with, I, I guess, down to trustees and board of governors mm -hmm. who are just like, no. And then it's like, oh, okay, so what really can we do? All we can do is like maybe create a label that's a little bit critical. It's really frustrating. Yeah. And that's also like, like deaccession and repatriation is a really messy thing. There's also a decent risk if you try and go through like a commercial route towards returning objects to their communities of origin, that they get stuck with an export ban, which is something that has literally happened today. And that was about the commercial sale 
of an object from the court of Tipu Sultan in Shringapatam that was uh, put up for sale and no one in the UK could afford to buy it. So it was going to leave the country and the government put an export ban on it on the basis that it's incredibly valuable to British history. <laughs> and it was an object that was brought to the UK by the East India Company after a war that they waged <laughs> against a local ruler. <laughs> and like they destroyed his palace. And this was one of the objects that was officially looted um, by the prize fund. And like, this is this is something that, gets really messy because in that case it's a commercial sale of an object that is potentially going to go to a private collection or whatever but repatriation and restitution you don't tend to have the same kind of power of the government to put an export export ban on an object but it does also mean that sometimes things are being sold overseas to be displayed in museums like there's a painting by joshua reynolds of one of the first um pacific islander people to visit the uk that is just like in permanent limbo because the owner is Irish and he wants to put it on public display in Ireland, but they don't want it to leave Britain. <laughs> they don't want it to leave England. And so no one can see it because it's subject to like a permanent export ban, basically. Just ridiculous. Yeah. So I kind of feel like maybe we should wrap up, but I just kind of want to, I kind of want to pose one final question here, because this is something that kind of like runs through cursed objects and it runs through any critique of material culture, I think, or like critique of objects. And I kind of want to know what you, what, what you both think about this, right? What would you say to someone that listens to this episode and just goes, they are just a bunch of moaning <laughs> lefties that don't want any fun. They want to take away our rubber ducks that are dressed up as First World War officers. They want to take away my ear eraser. Like, you know, what would you say to someone who like, you know, kind of thinks that this entire discussion that we had is basically a suggestion that like, these things should be banned and that they're terrible. And yeah, that like, you know, that what would you say to someone who thinks that? Because this is something I think about all the time. Because <laughs> the irony is obviously that we also still buy them. Like, you know, well, some of them, you didn't buy the ear eraser, but yeah. I did not, I did not. <laughs> I mean, my answer to that would be for what it's worth that discussing and critiquing the culture around education and history and public culture and public art doesn't mean that none of it should exist. Uh, like people will always say things like that when like like I feel like I've heard this sometimes when I've criticized something in the media and quite stupid people will say defensively, "Oh, so you think there should be no journalism?" And like no, I'm obviously not saying that. I would just like it to be better. It's quite simple. And it's because exactly because I take it seriously that I want to discuss how it is produced and by whom and and what it looks like. I think the same goes for the relationship between commerce and capitalism and the objects on display in our museums. That that would be my answer. <laughs> what about you, Alice? <laughs> it's that, I mean, it's that comic by, I think it's Matty Lubchansky that's like, and yet you also participate in society. <laughs> I am very smart. <laughs> when it's like, whenever anyone's like, I think we should improve society, there's always someone who's like, but aren't you also a part of society? Or like... I don't like capitalism. And yet you are typing this on a phone. Yeah. I'm very clever. Like, I think there's a lot of that going on. Mm. <laughs> and frankly, I do not have time for it. Um, when it comes to objects and stuff, I think we make ourselves through the things that we surround ourselves with. Like, I'm very straightforwardly interested in objects as a way of understanding how people kind of accumulate them and collect them. And the kind of expression of desire through things is something I'm super interested in. And that applies to weirdo collectors in the 18th century. And it applies to me buying postcards after an exhibition. And like the shit that I put on my walls is an expression of who I am as a person. And that is just as valuable as the stuff that was done by a museum collector in the 1850s. And that is interesting and it's important. And all stuff is important. It's important in different ways and to different extents. But like a rubber duck is a cultural artifact <laughs> and that's worth thinking about like I just I just really love things I just find them really interesting and and yeah like it's kind of moany I'm not saying that you can't own these things I'm just saying that I would like you to consider why you desire them excellent that's such a sterling defense not only of the Abraham Lincoln rubber duck but also the idea of cursed objects so thank you very much for that <laughs> you are so welcome <laughs> 
Um, and I think with that, uh, we should probably wrap up. So thank you so much, Alice. That's Alice Proctor with an E. Please, um, again. Yes. <laughs> oh, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say like, yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. This was really, really good fun. And I love the show. And this is delightful. <laughs> I would urge you all to please go and buy Alice's book, The Whole Picture. It is just fantastic if you're interested in museums and particularly art museums and also to listen to her podcast, Historical Friction, which, again, is just such an interesting kind of analysis of contemporary and, and like, kind of, yeah, historic pop popular culture, essentially. It's fantastic. So I urge you all to listen to that as well. So, yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Alice. What a fascinating discussion. Um, tune in for the next episode of Cursed Objects next week as Series 2 proceeds. And please do hit us up on our Patreon. We're going to be doing a lot more Patreon-only episodes when Series 2 finishes um, in March. Uh, so we'd love to have you on board for all of those and lots more exciting guests to boot. <laughs>